0: From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Dr. Jay Wellens tells us what it's like to operate on the brains and nervous systems of children. In a new memoir, he describes his work as a pediatric neurosurgeon, using advances in modern medicine to do amazing things like repairing the spine of a tiny fetus in utero and having hard conversations with parents when their child has a life-threatening illness or injury. Also, we hear from Chris Blackwell, the founder of Island Records, which recorded Bob Marley and the Wailers, including the album Catch a Fire, which helped introduce reggae to the U.S. Blackwell grew up in Jamaica. And film critic Justin Chang reviews a science fiction film set during a pandemic of sudden memory loss. Dave Davies has our first interview. Here's Dave to introduce it.
1: Our guest today, Jay Wellens, is used to operating on tiny brains. Not just brains, but all parts of kids' central nervous systems, including the spine of a fetus he described as being the size of three grains of rice stacked together. As a pediatric neurosurgeon, Wellens uses amazing advances in medicine to heal and repair children suffering from illnesses and injuries, some caused by car accidents, sports collisions, and increasingly gunshot wounds. But in practically every case, he's also dealing with parents confronting their worst fear, the prospect of losing a child. Wellens writes that he's cried with parents from relief and sometimes from sadness and sometimes in a locker room when no one else was there. Dr. Jay Wellens is a professor of neurological surgery at the Monroe Carell Junior Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's also medical director of the Surgical Outcomes Center for Kids, which he co-founded, and he's written op-ed pieces for the New York Times. He reflects on his experiences in a new memoir titled, All That Moves Us, A Pediatric Neurosurgeon, His Young Patients, and Their Stories of Grace and Resilience. Well, Jay Wellens, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Dave. The book is told mostly through cases. You take a chapter and tell us a story. And I wanted to begin with one. This is uh, a while back. You were practicing in Birmingham, Alabama. You get a call from an emergency room physician in, I think, Auburn, which is about 100 miles away. He yeah. has a nine-year-old girl who was injured in an auto accident.
2: What does he tell you? Well, it's, it's, it's unbelievably bad weather. And, you know, most— uh, you know, most tertiary medical centers have you know helicopters that fly back and forth, bringing you know bringing people in uh, who need to be seen you know, urgently or emergently. And you know, I get this call one Saturday morning uh, directly to me from an emergency room doctor down in Auburn in the kind of Opelika area of of uh, Alabama. And he says, you know, I've I've got this patient. She's an hour and a half out from her injury and you know, the the medevac helicopters aren't running because the weather's so bad. And, you know, Dave, you, you have like two and a half, three hours of this kind of golden window to really intervene. And so the clock is really ticking at this point. And, you know, at the time she was um, around the age of 10, she'd been in this terrible car accident, and she had a blood clot on the side of her head, and it was pushing on her brain, and she'd blown a pupil, which is the sign of that, you know, she was close to herniating, which is where the brain swells so much that... You know the patient ultimately dies. So this was just a full-on emergency. And at the time in in Birmingham, I had a picture on my desk of my dad in his flight suit holding his um, helmet. He was um, um, Air National Guard pilot, and he's standing next to the F4 that he that he flies. And I look at the flight suit and I just say, you know, to the ER doc, I'm like, look, are those Blackhawks still flying down there? Because if they are, call the Blackhawks. And he was like. Oh, that's a brilliant idea. Okay, bye.
1: And the the idea was that those military pilots will fly in any weather, <laughs> right, in any right. weather.
2: And you know, and so you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're here. Uh, so I went down to the ER, and they were just moving her from the gurney to the trauma bay. And there were two of those medevac soldiers there in their flight gear, and they were just dripping with water, you know, because they had just done whatever it took to get that girl to us. And I remember one of the young soldiers. I walked up and the nurse said, uh, oh, hey, Dr. Wellens, your patient's here. And I guess maybe one of the young soldiers knew to deliver this patient to Dr. Wellens. And he like immediately snapped to attention. And I was like, Eddie, soldier, I should be the one saluting you. You guys have just saved this girl's life.
1: So so you get her to the operating table. Uh, Things
2: were pretty critical, right? What was the situation? Well, she had a large blood clot uh, on the side of her head. It was pushing her brain to one side. It was causing her to have was called hemiparesis or weakness, but her pupil was blown. She was really unresponsive. Again, pupil blown means that there's a lot of pressure inside your head. And so at that point, we needed to get the blood clot out. And so, you know, I talked to the OR, they were ready. We, you know, one, two, three, got her over to the bed and turned her around and started clipping hair and prepping and making the incision. And when you do these cases, on an elective basis, you know, for non-emergent things, you know, you're kind of taking your time to each layer you go in. But in situations like this, the clock is ticking. And so, you know, it's like knife, drill, retractor, scissors, blood clot. You know, it's like it's that fast because you're trying to get it out. And um and really once we opened up the, the dura, which is the leathery covering of the brain, the blood clot just kind of just kind of squirted its way out. And it was like um Almost like a piece of liver, you know. It was just it would congeal and just under so much pressure, and then we could see that little vessel pumping, uh, you know. And so we just stopped it and irrigated and closed her up, and it was uh, it it was it was a good feeling to get that done.
1: There's that moment. Then after you know you've hopefully you've resolved the problem,
2: but then you got to see the patient respond. How did this little girl do? Well, I remember, you know, it was early in my practice. I remember, you know, getting her back up to the pediatric ICU with our neurosurgery resident. It was working with me. And, you know, I just remember sitting next to her bed. Um, you know, she's got a head wrap on. Is all these lines and IVs that, that are in people that, you know, we're used to um, in neurosurgery. But I just remember seeing her parents' faces and just how this was their, you know, beautiful child who would, you know, when all the world was young. I mean, just everything was just all the potential. And now everything is just summarized down to this one very dense spot where she was and, you know, where we were waiting to see how she would recover. And, you know, the flicker of the eyes open, that's a thats a miraculous feeling, Dave, you know, to see somebody wake up after something like that. So she was okay. Did you stay in touch with the family after that? Absolutely. You know, she... Um, she had some residual weakness um just um from how much pressure the blood clot was putting on her brain and um and you know you follow up patients on a, you know you see them back in a few weeks to get their stitches taken out then you maybe might see them in 6 months to get a scan you know you you, you um you follow them for a finite period of time and every time i would see her in clinic you know, it was some milestone accomplished, some amazing thing that she'd done, you know, as she was continuing to grow and getting on the honor roll or, you know, being a school mascot or, you know, winning a competition. And then and then it was time to discharge her from clinic um, because, you know, other than just me wanting to physically see them and see how well she was doing, it, it really, she didn't need me anymore. And the family continued to to send clippings and send updates and send messages, you know, until I got an invitation to her wedding, which was kind of amazing, as you can imagine. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, this is the thing. I mean, I, as, a, as a parent, I can only imagine what it would be like to bring your child in, you know, on the door of death and have this miraculous operation. And then they are restored and they proceed with their lives. I would imagine that's something that you would never forget. Do you have a big book of <laughs> photos and mementos from, from
2: patients you've treated? Yeah, I, I have a I have a big file in a big drawer, and um, um, you know, I'm uh, whenever I need to be um, lifted up or grounded, you know, or one of the two, I guess I, I will always pull that file out and just flip through it and just think, you know, this is why we do what we do because you know it's late nights, it's a lot of hours for the residents and for us in the field, but. But that that degree of gratitude, I mean, I've experienced it as a patient, I've experienced it as a parent, and I've experienced it as a surgeon. And so, as I've gotten 20 years into this job, into this career, you know, I'm when somebody tells me thank you for, you know, a particular clinical course that has done well, you know, or, or a miracle that's been answered, or however you want to say it, you know, I really understand that. I really try to let that wash over me in a way that it deserves, you know, that, that gratitude for, um, you know, for their child being okay or their child making it through or, or helping them navigate a tough situation where their child did not live, which is an incredibly difficult thing too.
0: We're listening to the interview Fresh Air's Dave Davies recorded with Dr. Jay Wellens, a pediatric neurosurgeon at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. His new memoir is called All That Moves Us, A Pediatric Neurosurgeon, His Young Patients, and Their Stories of Grace and Resilience. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break, and Justin Chang will review a science fiction film set during a pandemic of sudden memory loss. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Dave Davies' interview with Dr. Jay Wellens. He's a pediatric neurosurgeon at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and medical director of the Surgical Outcome Center for Kids, which he co-founded. He has a new memoir reflecting on his experiences operating on children facing critical illnesses and injuries and helping their parents cope with the wrenching emotional challenges of having a child in mortal danger. The book is called All That Moves Us, A Pediatric Neurosurgeon, His Young Patients, and Their Stories of Grace and Resilience.
1: You know, we're used to modern medicine uh, having these miraculous techniques, but I I gotta say, I mean, the description of your operation um, on a fetus in the womb is pretty mind-boggling. This is a surgery to correct a condition that leads to spina bifida. You want to explain what the... Condition is that you
2: have to correct in this circumstance. Yep, absolutely. So, um, so spina bifida is a condition where the spinal cord basically does not form normally, um, and uh, in the first few days after conception, uh, as the you know as the cells begin to flatten out into this neural plate, that's what it's called. It then rolls up into a tube, and then our body is formed around this neural tube. Well, if that neural tube at around the 21st or 24th day um, doesn't form all the way and round itself up into this tube, then everything is formed around it, but the nerves don't work. The spinal cord is, is exposed to the outside, and there are other things that can happen from that. Not only does the child have risk, you know, loss of bowel and bladder function and difficult with walking and moving the legs, but something called hydrocephalus, um, which is part and parcel for what pediatric neurosurgeons deal with, Um, something called hydrocephalus forms. And that's where the spinal fluid, it's actually made in the brain, gets backed up. And so um, for many, many years, this was repaired what's called postnatally, uh, which is, you know, in this 48 to 72 hours after the baby was delivered. And, um, you know, it's an operation where the, you know, you've got a 38- you know weak uh, baby or 39 week baby and you know you've got a sizable child and you and you you know do your repair you dissect out the thing you need to dissect the the neural code and you roll up the dura and you do all the procedure that you're supposed to do well um, somebody had the big idea um, that what if we could correct this in utero um, as a fetus like a can we do it and and B does it make an impact and um, that somebody was a guy named Noel Tulipan um who um worked at Vanderbilt and um he retired um, a few years ago and ultimately passed away but before he did he he passed on kind of this legacy of fetal surgery um and um it's remarkable to be a part of this team
1: now so this is a surgery that you've undertaken and in fact in the book you described doing it in Australia with some surgeons there for the first time on that continent so What's fascinating is that you're in the operating room and you're going to do the operation on the fetus, but there's another surgical team that has to help you get there, right? I mean, yeah, this is that's a right. pretty
2: complicated thing, kind of just
1: in basic terms what happens when you do this.
2: Well, the you know the 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 parents are counseled, uh you know, they're it's determined if we if we think as a team that there would be a benefit to surgery, right? And so um, the mom comes into the operating room. She goes to sleep. Um, lines are placed. Her stomach is prepped, and then there's an entire team called MFM, the Maternal-Fetal Medicine team, and um, and this happens across all the different um, institutions around North America and now the world that are doing fetal surgery. Uh, that have kind of rolled out, um, you know, after this particular study came out that was so so positive. So the the belly is prepped. An incision is made. The uterus is exposed. It's like a, it's like a, you know, like an orange, pink, you know, soccer ball. Um, and the team will ultrasound the, you know, the the dome of the uterus. Find a good place to open. Make the incision. Expose the inside of the uterus, which is where the fetus is. And so all of a sudden, at like 20 to 22 weeks, um, you know, we're down there looking at this. This little back that's rotated into into place, and the and from that at that point uh, is when we do the repair of the back to get that closed in order to reduce some of the long term sequella that can occur from spina bifida
1: right This is where you describe finding this spine which you describe as basically the size of three grains of rice
2: end to end, yeah, yeah it is um you know it can be depending on the size of the fetus it can be really small three grains of rice it can be a little bit bigger um um but most of the time it's quite small and um and you know we use our magnifying they're called loops these surgical loops which are magnifying glasses um that sit you know, that we wear and then we have a headlight on so that we can kind of see what we're doing. I'll also tell you that as I've gotten past 50, I had to get a new pair of loops that would, that would magnify it a little bit more for me so that I could see because it's so small.
1: You, know. you describe one of these surgeries where it went in a critically dangerous direction. The fetus was in a challenging position. You had to manipulate it a bit. What happened?
2: Well, you know, there I am. You know, the the whole operating room has, has done their part and, you know, in comes the pediatric neurosurgeon and in comes my assistant, a terrific resident at the time named Becca Reynolds, who ultimately is now training, doing a fellowship year in pediatric neurosurgery. So, you know, we're beginning the process of trying to rotate the, the back up so that we can have access to it. And it's hard and it keeps falling in a different direction, but we're able to get it up to where we need it to be. And then we... Start to close the, you know, to dissect that abnormal neural tissue, the three grains of rice away from the skin, so that we could, you know, begin to make the closure. And all of a sudden, Dave, there was just a a wash of blood over my knuckles, like a tsunami, and uh, and it was in my loops, so it was giant. You know, it was like it was, it looked like it was the whole room. And Kelly Bennett, who's the head of our team, I remember, I mean, her saying like, "We've got an abruption. We need to deliver the baby." And at this point, I'm I'm holding on, you know. To the fetus, and um, she's like, "Jay, you have to let go. Like, we have to deliver the baby." And so I remember just stepping back and watching as all the remainder of my team members, like, just went into the breach. You know, all of a sudden, the flash of steel. You know, that's what when the
1: placenta has detached. That's what had happened.
2: Yeah, basically, what happened is the placenta had begun to pull away from the uterine wall, and um, and then, which causes a massive amount of bleeding and placental abruption is considered an emergency for our obgyn colleagues and it's an emergency when you're definitely in the operating room trying to do an operation on a fetus. Yep, that's that's exactly what it happened. Placental abruption is called. So you said you became a bystander here, right? I did. I did. It took me 5 minutes to realize that I was still standing there holding my micro instruments in the air as all these things were happening like three battles raged around me, you know. Their anesthesias just pumping in blood to keep this young mother alive. And then the maternal fetal medicine team is squeezing down on the uterus, putting these big, heavy stitches in to try to save her uterus. And then behind me, this limp little 21-week organ almost, you know, was – thrust into the hands of the neonatology team that's there, and they're putting in tiny little tubes, and they're breathing little bits of air and putting medicine down the tube, and you know, there's just three battles raging around me, and I literally, like you said, am a bystander.
1: And in this case, they managed to stabilize the mom. She recovered, and the fetus survived, right? And then do I, do I have this right two days later when the fetus is stabilized? Then you went in and did the surgery?
2: Well, actually, actually, Dave, we did it right there. You know, the wow. um, what happened is that the um, you know anesthesia was like I think we got control guys, and uh, I saw that the MFN, MFM team had decided that hey, we're going to be able to keep the uterus, and so, and then I looked behind me, and the neonatology team was calm. Somebody even like cracked a joke, you know, and and I was I was just amazed, you know, at the at what it takes. You know, you practice for this over and over again. You know, airline pilots practice for this. Surgeons practice for this. Lots of people practice for chaos and for things to go south. But, you know, to go from, like, I don't know, the camera's on you to all of a sudden being a bystander and watching the people that you worked with for 10 years, like, step into the breach and fix the situation was pretty amazing. So it was a scrub nurse, Melissa, who was with us when we did that Australia trip a few years ago. She saw me look at the baby and she said, hey, Dr. J, I've still got your instruments sterile. I've kept them sterile on the back table. And I went over and asked the neonatology team. I said, hey, you know, what if I close the back? Could I do that while we're here? And they were like, can you do it in 20 minutes? I was like, you bet. And so that's what we did. So we, we got it closed right there in the operating room. Yep. Uh,
1: is that a healthy person today, that fetus? Yeah, Ramsey's amazing. Yeah, wow. she is.
2: Wow. Yeah, and her parents are just—they're just the most amazing people. They were just grateful the whole time. It's just been a, a series of, of just shared gratitude between our teams and the families, and getting pictures of Ramsey. You know, it's just terrific, Dave.
1: Another issue in the news, which has medical implications, of course, is the Supreme Court's overturning the Roe versus Wade. Ruling? Do you anticipate that that will affect your job at all?
2: Man, I got to tell you, like I was just um, three weeks ago, I was up giving the Mike Scott lecture at Boston Children's Hospital in Harvard, and the very first question that came at the end of my 50-minute talk was, "What do you think is going to happen if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade in terms of termination for significant neural, you know, neurologic deficits or defects?" And so it is on people's minds for sure. Um, and uh, I will tell you a, a story about my niece. And my niece is, um, has allowed me to talk about this and i in the process of writing a piece about it. Um, but my niece's name is Chapel. And uh, Chapel called me one day when after being pregnant for a few weeks to say, I'm with the OB. We've just done our 13-week ultrasound. And they say that there's a problem with the brain. And uh, they say that I need to come see you. Uncle Jay and um, we get her into the fetal clinic we do the ultrasound I'm right there with them the whole time this you know my niece who I've known since she was a baby my children walked in her wedding um, and um, there's this encephalocele it's giant and the entire brain is on the outside of the skull and it's kind of everted so now it's also at the mercy of the amniotic fluid which is that caustic fluid that gets more caustic over time which is why fetal surgery for spina bifida makes a difference So, you know, in that scenario, the choices are to have a child that um, is ultimately born that's in constant pain, that has no ability to communicate or see or interact with the world around them. They're in a wheelchair, the type of wheelchair that holds your neck still. Um, They have G-tube feedings, and over time, they never grow up from being a baby. Um, they, They become adults who have that degree of care that's needed. And um, in situations like this, before with other patients, we've talked about termination, and that's what we talked about with my niece. And fast forward the story two years I'm in the hospital during pandemic with a healthy baby that they've had and a second baby that they've had, and it's just a tremendously different path. Um, and I just, I can't tell you how much I think that this ruling is going to affect the um, what it's like for families to have these substantial neurologic, cardiac, urologic umphalocele where the gut's outside the body that it's hard to be fixed sometimes. Like We're going to see a lot more of these now. And we're going to have to, as a society, understand that we're going to have to take care of these children. That's our job. So yes, I think it's going to have an impact. Well, Dr. Jay Wellens, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Dave. It's been a really tremendous honor for me to be here with you today and be on Fresh Air.
0: Dr. Jay Wellens is a professor of neurological surgery at the Monroe Carell Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and he's medical director of the Surgical Outcome Center for Kids, which he co-founded. His new memoir is called All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his young patients, and their stories of grace and resilience. He spoke with Fresh Air's Dave Davies. Our film critic Justin Chang recommends the science fiction mystery Apples. It's about a man experiencing the effects of sudden memory loss. It's a Greek movie that first played festivals in the fall of 2020 and was Greece's Oscar submission for the best international feature that year. It's now playing in U.S. theaters. Here's Justin's review.
3: I first watched Apples about two years ago, several months into COVID lockdown. At the time, the movie felt eerily of the moment since its story takes place during a pandemic. In this pandemic, however, people aren't spreading a deadly virus. They're inexplicably losing their memories. We see this happen in the opening scenes, when an unnamed middle-aged man, played by Aris Servitali, leaves his Athens apartment one day, gets on a bus, and falls asleep. When he wakes up, he can no longer remember his name, where he lives, or where he was going. He isn't carrying any ID, and so he winds up in a hospital where doctors examine him and wait for family members or friends to come and identify him. But no one shows up, and so the man is enrolled in a government program designed to help him and the many others like him cope with their amnesia. He's placed in an apartment and given money for expenses. Each day he plays a cassette tape. The movie seems to be taking place pre-internet and listens to a voice assigning him a specific task like ride a bicycle or go watch a horror movie, in hopes that these experiences will help jog his memory. He's instructed to take Polaroids of these experiences and keep them in a scrapbook, which comes to resemble an extremely analog Instagram account. It all sounds bizarre on paper, but Apples, the first feature from the director and co-writer Christos Niku, unfolds with an understated deadpan wit that makes even its weirder touches seem plausible, even logical. At times it reminded me of some of the brilliant, absurdist satires, like Dogtooth and Attenberg, that have put Greek cinema on the map over the past two decades. But Niku has a gentler, more melancholy touch. The script leaves a lot to the imagination. We learn no more about the cause or the outcome of the pandemic than we do about the avian attacks in Hitchcock's The Birds. We also don't learn much about the main character's background. There are no flashbacks to his earlier life, and there's no voiceover narration either. But while the character is quiet and emotionally reserved by nature, Servitali, the actor playing him, is a mesmerizing screen presence. Sometimes Niku shoots him in close-up, and sometimes from a distance, creating a ghostly, disorienting effect. You can't stop watching him, whether he's walking the streets of an eerily underpopulated Athens or slicing and eating apples, his favorite fruit. At one point he befriends a woman, played by Sofia Giorgo who's also trying to recover her memory through the government program. An attraction forms, but then quickly dissipates. Their amnesia is more of a hindrance than a bond. Without their memories and their identities... It's hard for these two lonely, drifting souls to get on the same wavelength. Speaking of memory, watching Apples for the second time in two years, I was startled by how vividly I remembered much of it. In particular, I haven't stopped mentally replaying one extraordinarily moving scene in which our hero goes to a crowded dance club and begins doing the twist, losing himself in the music and the moment. (laughs) Is he suddenly remembering how he used to dance? Or is he blissfully surrendering himself to his amnesia? It's not immediately clear. And it's also not the only such ambiguous moment. At times, our hero seems to experience flashes of clarity. He remembers his old address. He recognizes a dog from his old neighborhood. Is his memory coming back? But if so, why doesn't he share this good news with anyone? Almost as if he preferred to stay in the dark. Is there some other explanation for what's going on? I won't give anything away, especially since I'm not entirely sure myself. But as it unfolds, Apple seems to become a story about romantic loss as well as memory loss. Sometimes it suggests a lower-key version of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And like that tale of lost love, it asks whether some memories are best left forgotten. As strange and singular as Apples is, its protagonist's condition hits on something universal. It's about how we deal with grief and loneliness, especially when memory becomes more of a curse than a blessing.
0: Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the Greek film Apples. Coming up, we talk with Chris Blackwell, the founder of Island Records, which recorded such diverse performers as Bob Marley and the Wailers, Jimmy Cliff, U2, Grace Jones, Tom Waits, Roxy Music, Steve Winwood, Cat Stevens, the B-52s, and many more. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. The album that introduced Bob Marley and the Wailers to the U.S. and the U.K., Catch a Fire, was produced by our next guest, Chris Blackwell, for his record label, Island Records. The second Whalers album Blackwell released, Burning, included this anthem.
4: Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up.
0: Blackwell and Marley continued to work together until Marley's death. Chris Blackwell was an executive producer of the film The Harder They Come and released the soundtrack with the now-classic title song by the film's star, Jimmy Cliff. But that's just one side of the music Blackwell was behind. His label recorded U2, Grace Jones, Tom Waits, Roxy Music, Steve Winwood, Cat Stevens, the B-52s, and many more. He also founded the film production company Island Alive, which made the films *Koyaanisqatsi*, Scotzi, Mona Lisa, Kiss of the Spider-Woman, and the Talking Heads concert film stopped making sense. Even before he got into the music business, Blackwell had a fascinating life. He grew up in Jamaica, where his mother was close friends with Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond books, the great songwriter Noel Coward, and the movie star Errol Flynn. Blackwell knew these men and worked as a scout and production assistant on the early Bond film Dr. No. Chris Blackwell has written a new memoir called The Islander, My Life in Music and Beyond. Chris Blackwell, welcome to Fresh Air. It's a pleasure to have you on our show, and thank you for all the wonderful music that you've released over the decades. You were close with Bob Marley until he died of cancer in the early 80s, and he had written a song toward the end called Redemption Song that he played for you, and you convinced him to just do it solo, just voice and his guitar. Um, Why did you want him to record it that way?
5: Because I thought it was a very moving song, a very important song, something which really would touch the soul. And I wanted, I did, I wanted it to be just very clear, just his voice and guitar. I didn't want to hear a bass, a drums, uh, you know, any other musical instruments. I felt it should just be something which you just heard. It was very clear and it would move you.
0: Well, why don't we hear this version of Redemption song where it's just Bob Marley and his guitar?
4: All pirates, yes, rabbi, sold I to the merchant ships, minutes after they took I from the bottomless pits, but my hand was made strong. By the end of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourself That was
0: Bob Marley, vocals on guitar, singing a song Redemption Song from his final album, Uprising, and that's the last track on that album. Um,
5: it's the last track he recorded.
0: And the last track he recorded. Yes. It seems like a fitting last track, doesn't it?
5: It really does. It really does.
0: Um... So you grew up in Jamaica. Your mother's family had been the banana kings of Costa Rica. When she was born in 1912, the family relocated to Jamaica after she was born and developed sugarcane fields and then bought rum manufacturing companies. Your father was born in England. His father was Irish and was a descendant of the founders of the Cross and Blackwell Food Company. So it sounds like, yeah, you came from, uh, you know, a very very privileged background in Jamaica um, your mother was friends with Ian Fleming who wrote the James Bond novels and a couple of the characters in his stories were inspired by your mother which characters
5: one was called Pussy Galore and the other one was called um, gosh I can't remember that. I can't remember the other one but that was, that was the main one
0: <laughs> but it was the character Ursula Andress played
5: that's right Ursula yes that's right
0: um so you got your start in music scouting records for jukeboxes. Uh, and at one time, you were responsible for 63 jukeboxes in Jamaica. And for people who who are too young to remember jukeboxes, you'd put in a coin or two and choose the record you wanted to hear, and the record would play. What was the importance of jukeboxes in Jamaica at the time you were filling the jukeboxes?
5: Well, if you are making a record, your best opportunity to get it played by um, people would be uh, in jukeboxes, because um, the radio station would play usually English recordings. Winifred Atwell, who was a hugely popular uh, piano player in England, or American music would be mainly played on the radio, and Jamaican music wasn't played that much.
0: You also scouted records for sound systems, and these were the sound systems, you know, that basically DJs would use at parties. Um, Why were sound systems so important in Jamaica in spreading new music?
5: Well, they made these speakers, massive speakers. I mean, really would be like 15 foot high, you know, with huge, huge speakers in them. And you could hear them four or five miles away, literally, when they were blasting in the country. And it was great. I mean, it was really exciting. And then the closer you got there, the more people there were there. And that's really where all the action was. And the people who did those sound systems, you know, they carried liquor liquor there and uh, played the music there and the people would pay an entry fee there. And what I did was look for recordings which I thought that they would really like, and bring them to Jamaica and sold it to them.
0: Oh, and you describe it that it was like very competitive because each person who had a sound system wanted to have great music that no one else had. So you'd scout records, including in the U.S., and then scrape off the label so that no one could figure out what it was, <laughs> so that they couldn't couldn't find it. Um, That's right. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like it was quite a time. It sounds like very unique to Jamaica.
5: Well, it, it was really great. Thinking back on that period in time, it was great fun, and it was really exciting. When those sound systems would be blasting, you couldn't, you couldn't believe how loud they'd be. And you'd find people sometimes sleeping on the speakers, and you'd think, how can they be sleeping on the speakers? You can hear the music three miles away, but they would be sleeping on the speakers because they'd been up for one or two days probably playing the recordings. It was hilarious.
0: You know, in in your book you write that one of the reasons why you left Jamaica and went to England is that when Jamaica was getting its independence, you felt like you were on the wrong side of history in Jamaica. And, you know, your parents or your mother's family had a, a banana plantation in Jamaica um, so I'm wondering what it was like for you to work with artists. How did you bridge that gap? Did they see you as, you know, representing the colonizers?
5: I don't think so, really, because, um, you know, I didn't sort of live that kind of way. I was I was very close with uh, Jamaicans, you know. I, I really was. I cared a lot for them. I love them a lot. Still do. They're wonderful people. And... um I went to England, really, because I felt that the music that I was doing could really start to work in England. And I could open it up to a much wider audience than just Jamaica.
0: The first big hit that you had after starting Island was a song called My Boy Lollipop by Millie Small. Now, she, she was, what, 15 when you recorded her?
5: 16, maybe 17.
0: So you wanted to bring her over to England to record her but you needed her mother's permission and she had a very unusual sound a really kind of high pitched voice what attracted you to her and how did you match up the song My Boy Lollipop to her the song was written by Robert Spencer of the doo-wop group the Cadillacs
5: well I first heard her singing a song called Wheel Meat and that was produced by really the top Jamaican producer in those days called Cox and Dodd and um, whenever I played it for anybody in England, they would insist that I, I give them, I let them take the record. They wouldn't leave my house unless I would let them take the record. And I thought to myself, well, if, if everybody loves this that much, I should really go and check out and see if I could maybe bring her over to England and find a hit for her in England. So that's what I did. I went to Jamaica and I br- brought her back to England. And um, I also brought a guitarist, a Jamaican jazz guitarist, a brilliant musician. I brought him over too. And Ernest Ranglin was a guitarist. And we went in the studio. And uh, when we produced that record, it was only one minute and 58 seconds. And um, when I heard it, I knew it was going to be a hit. I just knew it. I don't know how to tell you why I knew it, but I just knew it. Because it just felt perfect.
0: Well, I will tell you before we hear this record that I used to do, I think, a not half bad Millie Small impression. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, I would do that for my friends. And they, I, think, I think it's fair to say they thought it was like not bad. <laughs> so
5: uh, That's good.
0: So let's hear My Boy Lollipop. This is Millie Small. That was Millie Smalls recording My Boy Lollipop, the first really big hit that Chris Blackwell had on his record label Island Records. Well, success certainly changed Millie Smalls' life. How did it change your life?
5: Well, it really changed my life because I went from... from normally, I'd been driving around London, going to all the record stores and selling to the, 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 in the Jamaican areas and I loved doing it. I was really enjoying it. And um, when this record came out, suddenly I was in studios, you know, um, with the, the, you know, the the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, the, you know. So I went from nowhere to being right up at, at that kind of top level in terms of connections it wasn't that i didn't be, i wouldn't didn't become personally top it was just that i was around them and it changed it, it you know changed my life and suddenly you know you're somebody that people will will call you and and say oh they'd like you to do a record which is in fact what happened
0: you um were an executive producer on the film the harder they come which is set in the jamaican music industry and starred jimmy cliff the singer and songwriter who recorded the title song the harder they come and uh, the the film came out in 1972 this was like a really important reggae song um so i i want to play it but you want to say a few words about the harder they come the film and the song or about jimmy cliff before we hear the song
5: sure jimmy cliff is one of the best artists ever out of jamaica he was super talent from very young. He had a strange sort of beginning in life because he was not in touch with his mother at all or nor his father. He was really like a, a loner. Um, I saw him doing a show uh, one time and I spoke to him and persuaded him to come over to England and come and work with me in England. And he came over to England and right at the beginning he actually was in the studio when i was recording the spencer davis groups keep on running if you listen to it you'll hear the kind of clapping and things and that was jimmy cliff in the studio and then from there he advanced and he started to form his own band and everything and he was doing he was doing really well but we we just couldn't get it we just he was doing well like He would do shows and things, and people would like the shows, but we never really had a hit which could get him on the radio and get him famous, as it were. And when the opportunity came for him to play a part in a movie, I said, you should definitely do that, and he did that. And uh, he also wrote a lot of the songs for the movie, and he was the star of the movie, and that movie really had a tremendous effect on on bringing the Jamaican world music and and culture and everything to the forefront.
0: Um, Well, let's hear The Harder They Come. And this is Jimmy Cliff, recorded in, was it
5: 1972? About that. Okay.
0: That was Jimmy Cliff, The Harder They Come, and the album was released on Island Records, the record label uh, created and owned by my guest, Chris Blackwell. Chris Blackwell, thank you so much for talking with us.
5: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much.
0: Chris Blackwell is the founder of Island Records. His new memoir is called The Islander. That place. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yacundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross.